0: This is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Today, January 6th, is a grim anniversary for Americans. We'll be getting to that in a minute. Later in the show, Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates will talk about W.E.B. Du Bois, the black historian and activist of the first part of the 20th century, and his book, Black Reconstruction, 1860 to 1880, was published originally in 1935, and it's out now in a new edition from the Library of America, edited by Foner and Gates. Also later in the hour, a conversation with historian Adam Hochschild about his fascinating biography, Rebel Cinderella, From Rags to Riches to Radical, the Epic Journey of Rose Pastor Stokes. But first... On the first anniversary of the January 6th insurrection, we have a couple of basic conclusions about that grim day. First of all, the attack on the Capitol was the beginning of a movement to overthrow democracy in America. And second, Republicans are working now to steal the 2024 presidential election if their candidate doesn't win and they're well on their way to passing the state laws that would allow them to do that. The best defense we have right now is the Democrats' voting reform bills. That's the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. For comment, we turn to Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect. Hi, Harold. Hi, John. Well, the Freedom to Vote Act, just a reminder here, this is the part that would expand voter registration and mail-in voting. It would work to stop partisan gerrymandering. And then the other law, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, would restore the part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that gives the Justice Department the authority to veto new voting rules in states with a history of discrimination. Both of these bills, we've talked about them often, are awaiting action in the Senate where the Republicans' filibuster has blocked them. The big news this week is that after a year of not saying much about reforming the filibuster, Chuck Schumer finally said, quote, the Senate will debate and consider changing the Senate filibuster rules on or before January 17th. Martin Luther King Day, close quote. Uh, Do you think we will uh, change the filibuster on or before January 17th?
1: I wish. Uh, But uh, Joe Manchin on uh, Tuesday said he was uh, not at all inclined to get rid of the filibuster. He might go for some minor amendments like requiring a talking filibuster, uh, a la Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But uh, not and you know, and maybe eliminating uh, the requirement for uh, 60 votes to begin debate, but not eliminate, eliminating it to actually enact legislation. So I think the Democrats are one or two dollars short. The other one being uh, Senator Kristen Cinema from Arizona, of course. Um, So it looks like there will be no uh, effective response to what the Republicans are doing, the most extremely dangerous example of which is having state legislatures uh, with the power essentially to overturn uh, the popular vote and decide to send whichever slate of presidential electors they want to send.
0: Yeah, This is a flaw in the Constitution, which was written by some uh, old white men, I think we can call them, who were not fans of democracy anyway, and did not really want a popular vote deciding on the president, and they set up various obstacles to that, one being the Electoral College, and the other being how the electors are are chosen, which they didn't, in our opinion, do a very good job of uh, of outlining.
1: No. No. Uh, uh- James Madison's fear of uh, popular sovereignty uh, is uh, encoded in how the Constitution says we should elect a president. This is this is partly, in many ways, you know, a problem of having established a government uh, a little before uh, other forms of popular majority rule governments arose, um, and not having amended it so that at least they comport with the reforms of, shall we say, the uh, Andrew Jackson period. Not that that was anything recent of uh, of American politics. So uh, we, we we are saddled with 18th century biases and and uh, presuppositions that are essentially anti-majority rule. And here we are. Well, let's
0: move away from Congress and talk about public opinion a year after the insurrection. There have been a bunch of pretty interesting polls that have come out in the last couple of days. An ABC Ipsos poll asked if the rioters at the Capitol had been, quote, threatening democracy. And 72% said yes. Uh, 52% of Republicans said the attackers had been, quote, protecting democracy. And there's a new AP poll that asks whether Trump himself deserves a great deal or quite a bit of the blame for the insurrection. 57% say yes. If you say, does Trump incl- was Trump moderately to blame? That number grows to 70%. And even four in 10 Republicans say Trump bears at least a moderate amount of responsibility. Of course, that means 60% of Republicans say Trump bears little or no responsibility. Uh, I I read, however, that, always looking for the bright side here, my job, that number is 11 points lower than it was a year ago. So 11% 11 fewer Republicans uh, say Trump bears little or no responsibility. and then there's a CBS News YouGov poll asked whether democracy today is threatened in the United States. 66% of the respondents said yes. So
1: what do you make of the, this week's polling? Well, uh, on the one hand, it shows why the Republicans are resistant to popular sovereignty because they have a clear majority against their, their core positions. But it also shows how uh, an intransigent lack of any empirical uh, input, I mean, uh, you know, uh, characterizes still the base of the Republican Party, which in a lot of these other polls suggest uh, that uh, the base of the Republican Party has a relatively high percentage, I think in the 40 percent. Of uh, of saying that you know violence may be uh, needed uh, in 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 the future, and you know that is the threat that the seventy percent, sixty six percent of the general public uh, shares about the threat to democracy that the Repo- today's Republican Party, frankly, is a clear and present danger to small d democratic rule.
0: And there's a structural reason why the Republicans don't have to campaign to win a majority. Let's remind our listeners, Republicans have lost the vote for the presidency in what, six of the last seven
1: elections? Seven of the last eight. Actually. Seven of the last eight. Seven uh, of the last eight. Uh, the, the, only, the only time uh, a Republican won uh, an actual uh, plurality uh, in the popular vote for president was the re-election campaign in 2004 of George W. Bush. Other than that, they've lost seven of the last last eight, and yet uh, they keep electing presidents.
0: Well, and partly this is because of what we've just been talking about, the Madisonian bias against popular democracy, which gives uh, extra power to rural, uh, less populated states to uh, have more power in the Senate. And more power to elect presidents in the Electoral College.
1: Absolutely. And that's without having Republican legislatures just flatly override the vote in their own states, which we uh, is something we may be facing uh, in 2024.
0: So we've also had the Special House Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection. Uh, they've been hard at work, and there's a lot of fascinating material they've come up with about most interesting to us about leading Republicans trying to stop Trump, the latest this week was Sean Hannity, number one at Fox, uh, sent uh, a series of text messages over the week to uh, Mark Meadows, Trump's chief of staff, that the that the House committee released. Um, the most interesting to me was four days after January 6th, Sean Hannity, uh, uh texted that he had talked with trump this is january 10th and that trump he complained that trump was still saying the election had been stolen and sean hannity texted trump's chief of staff quote he can't mention the election again period ever period i did not have a good call with him today at worse and worse i'm not sure what is left to do or say close quote, Sean Hannity. So here's Sean Hannity four days later saying he should never mention the
1: election again. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, you know, the sort of establishment Republicans and the Republican campaign strategists keep saying uh, we can't look backward, we have to look forward. They they don't sense that this is really a great issue uh, on which Republicans can run. That said, Trump is not only still doing it, but has made clear that he will support primary challengers to Republican members of Congress uh, who don't want to reinvestigate 2020. Um, and he's sort of making it a bedrock belief of uh, today's Republican uh, Trumpian Republicanism. And so, uh, you know, I mean, we, we have a guy who is sort of pathologically inca- incapable of acknowledging that he's lost anything and he has managed to convert with the help of Fox News and social media and talk radio, he has managed to convert uh, a, a huge number of Republicans um, to his, his way of looking at this, which is, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're, we're into social pathology, social uh, psychosis here, if, 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 uh, if anything.
0: And and what do you make of the work of the special house committee over, over the last year? We certainly learned a lot of interesting
1: things. We have learned a lot of interesting things, and they have a lot of summons out to key uh, people like the person, uh, like the people on both ends of the Sean Hannity to uh, a Mark Meadows communique. Uh, and uh, there'll be some upcoming clashes as to whether people who refuse to appear or who have been subpoenaed to appear before the committee, including now uh, uh, Donald Trump Jr., Ivanka Trump, uh, and uh, Steve Bannon, and many others, what, what they will choose to do about that if they refuse to testify. Uh, you know, clearly the Republicans, uh, uh, you know, while the Republicans on the committee, led by Lynn Cheney, uh, really do want to from their point of view, purge the Republican Party of this, of this nonsense, uh, you know, the, the, there won't be anything that the Republicans generally will do about this except to support the, the non-appearance of, of witnesses who the committee needs to hear from and America needs to hear from.
0: Are, are we going to get uh, live TV uh, hearings like in the olden days where top people testify about what happened?
1: Let us hope. Um, you know, uh, I I think the Democrats would very much like that. It's an issue that works in their favor. They have a majority on that committee and a majority in Congress. But that also means this has to be concluded during 2022 because there's absolutely no guarantee the Democrats will have, uh, you know, the ability to do that uh, in in the next Congress. Democrats, uh, by now, the, the number of Democratic House members who have said they're not running for re-election is is about a two dozen, um, <laughs> which is, a think, kind of an acknowledgement that they do not expect the Democrats to retain the majority in the House. Yeah. So on the
0: one hand, we have... The House Special Committee. Then there's the criminal prosecution of the insurrectionists. This week we've been getting the sort of the the progress report on how many have been charged, how many have pleaded guilty, and so on. Here's what here's what we know. Seven hundred people have been arrested and charged in the insurrection. About 275 of them have been charged with the What the government has decided is the chief crime of January 6th, and that is the law against obstructing Congress's duty, uh, in this case to certify the 2020 uh, presidential vote count. Uh, 225 other people have been charged with attacking or interfering the police. Uh, 300 people have been charged only with petty crimes like trespassing and disorderly conduct. Uh, 20% of everybody has pleaded guilty by this point, and half of them have already been sentenced. The longest sentence so far has been five years in prison. This was for Robert Palmer, a Florida man who threw a fire extinguisher at a cop. Uh, probably the most notable sentence is that notorious nutball who we all saw his picture many times, the guy who wore furs and a horned helmet Uh as he presided over the empty Senate chamber. This is a guy's name, Jacob Chansley. He was sentenced to 41 months. Uh, He's appealing that. Uh, None of the organizer or higher ups have been charged. There will be public trials of people who are pleading not guilty. They begin February 24th. However, this is the most interesting thing that I saw about the criminal charges. A Washington Post review of court records Found that the vast majority of those charged were not known to be part of far right groups or premeditated conspiracies to attack the Capitol. Instead, they were a collection of everyday Americans who gathered in Washington either to protest or to actively try to stop the congressional certification of Biden's victory. Jonathan Turley at the GWU Law School, who we admire and appreciate, said there's, quote, there's no grand conspiracy the FBI found despite investigating thousands of people and arresting hundreds. So that kind of gives us pause, I think.
1: Well, you know, we're halfway between the conspiracy on the one hand and uh, the Nathaniel West's Day of the Locusts on the other, a novel in which a disconsolate uh, crowd in in Los Angeles, I think assembled for a movie premiere that something happens bad at uh, riots. Um, uh, You know, I mean, uh, the ability of Trump himself and all the right-wing media, both paid and social, um, to incite uh, clearly reached well beyond people who were, you know, members of the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys or whatever. And, you know, they they touched a number of people in the Trump base. And to be in the Trump base past a certain point, you, uh, you know, you have to be infuriated and, and losing uh, contact with the, the basic contours of reality, uh, which strikes me as uh, two necessary components rather than belonging to an officially right-wing nutcase group, but two necessary components uh, to turn out a crowd, uh, turn out the crowd on, uh, on January 6th of last year.
0: Now, usually at this point in the show, we review the situation with Biden's Build Back Better bill in the Senate. Um, several of our friends are now saying that, uh, well, it would be a good thing to pass some parts of the Build Back Better bill, a good thing for everyone in the long run. It's really too late for this to be significant in this year's midterms, especially given the fact that there's a new COVID crisis uh, going on right now with the Omicron uh, variant. And these friends of ours argue that Biden and the Democrats now need to focus on the current crisis uh, and escalate the anti-COVID fight. Talk about COVID, not about Child poverty, or you know the other things in, in in the bill, along with of course defending democracy. What do you think about this argument?
1: Well, uh, I I think, and I just edited a piece uh, that Dave Dayan wrote about January sixth, which which notes that we're going to spend the next couple of weeks uh, in Congress spinning our wheels on uh, where the Senate actually refuses to take down the filibuster and therefore pass the voting rights, uh, uh, bills. Um, I, you know, I, I think, uh, we can walk on two legs. I think, uh, Biden, you know, can do, um, what there is to do, uh, to, uh, limit the damage of, uh, of, of Omicron. Uh, there'll be a Supreme Court hearing on Friday this week, uh, about whether OSHA has the power to enact uh, workplace safeguards, uh, which diehard conservatives have opposed, and it's reaching the Supreme Court on Friday. Uh, You know, and uh, look, uh, if COVID keeps rolling on, it is, yes, going to eclipse a lot of news, but, you know, I think Build Back Better in whatever truncated form is going to pass at some point. And, you know, Democrats, I think, can legitimately still make hay about that and about the Republican opposition to what will be some very popular measures, even if um, COVID is still an issue uh, into the summer and God forbid, even into the fall.
0: Harold Meyerson on the grim anniversary of January 6th, read them at prospect.org. Harold, thanks for today. Always good to have you on the show.
1: Always great to be here, John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. A year after the largest protest movement in American history, the Black Lives Matter protests of 2020, one of the key books of American and African-American history is being published in a definitive new edition. Black Reconstruction by W.E.B. Du Bois, the pioneering work of revisionist scholarship, published originally in 1935 and out now from the Library of America, edited by Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates, Jr., who join us now. Henry Louis Gates teaches at Harvard, where he's the Alphonse Fletcher University professor and director of the Hutchins Center for African and African American Research. He's written many books, including Stony the Road, Black Reconstruction, White Supremacy, and The Rise of Jim Crow. And of course, he's widely known as the host of many documentary films for PBS, including a four-hour series on Reconstruction two years ago. He's also, of course, known for his wonderful PBS series, Finding Your Roots. New season starts January 4th. My favorite from this past year was Angelica Houston, where she bursts into tears when she learns that an ancestor of hers freed his slaves in his will. We talked about it here. Skip Gates, welcome back. Thanks, John. Eric Foner, of course, taught history at Columbia for a long time. His work on Reconstruction and the Civil War has won the Pulitzer Prize, the Bancroft Prize, and the Lincoln Prize. He's also written for the New York Times op-ed page, the TLS, the LRB, and The Nation, where he's a member of the editorial board. Eric, welcome back.
2: Yeah, nice to see you again, John.
0: Well, let's start with each of you reading a paragraph
3: or two. Skip? Well, if it's okay, I would like to read a passage from a book that occasioned, in part, Du Bois's decision to write Black Reconstruction. And it was from an exceedingly popular account of Reconstruction written by the journalist Claude Bowers. It was called The Tragic Era, and it was published uh, at the end of the Jazz Age, at the end of the Harlem Renaissance, 1929. And it was another history of reconstruction as a form of, quote unquote, Negro rule in which corrupt and morally degenerate African-Americans demonstrated that they were unfit for freedom, much less for governing themselves and, my God, governing over white people. I quote directly from the tragic era, freedom, it meant idleness and gathering in noisy groups in the streets. Soon they were living like rats in ruined houses in miserable shacks under bridges, built with refuse lumber, in the shelter of ravines and in caves in the banks of rivers. Freedom meant throwing aside all marital obligations, deserting wives and taking new ones, and an indulgence in sexual promiscuity that soon took its toll in the victims of consumption and venereal disease, jubilant and happy The Negro who had his dog and a gun for hunting, a few rags to cover his nakedness, and a dilapidated hobble in which to sleep was in no mood to discuss work." Unquote. The book published by Houghton Mifflin was a bestseller and a selection of the Literary Guild. The book went through 12 subsequent hardcover printings. Anna Julia Cooper, the pioneering Black feminist, the principal of the famous M Street School in Washington, wrote to Du Bois, urging him to write about Reconstruction in a way that would forcefully respond to Bowers and to Eric's predecessors in the Columbia History Department, the Dunning School. And she said, thou art the man to do it. And Du Bois did it. Claude
0: Bowers, the tragic era. We've never heard from Claude Bowers on our show before. so. uh, (laughs)
2: Let me make a quick point about Claude Bowers now that we've heard some of his views. Claude Bowers, among other things, was appointed ambassador to Spain by Franklin D. Roosevelt. All during the 1930s, he was the American ambassador to Spain. My point is that at that time, completely overt racism, as we heard, did not disqualify you at all from a high position. Indeed, the Democratic Party, people admire Roosevelt greatly, for, sometimes for good reason. But uh, on questions of race, uh, that was just not something of interest to him.
3: They didn't think it was racist. The, the general opinion was that this was an accurate account right. of this unfortunate experiment gone mad of allowing Negroes to rule over white people and themselves in the 12 years after the Civil War.
2: And Du Bois, of course countered this and uh, denounced it in Black Reconstruction, particularly the final chapter of the propaganda of history in which he took the entire history profession and Bowers and many others to task for totally distorting the history of Reconstruction. Let me just read you a few sentences from that chapter. Du Bois writes, I write in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, as a Negro, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes and their ability to be educated, to do the work of the modern world. But as a student of science, I want to be fair, objective, and judicial. But armed and warned with all this, I stand at the end of this writing literally aghast at what American historians have done to this field, aghast at the overt racism and just distortion of facts that the existing literature of Reconstruction represented. And uh, Du Bois wrote Black Reconstruction in order to set the record straight.
0: And Eric, do you want to just say, A few words about your own predecessors at Columbia University?
2: Yes, we have a lot to answer for in the Columbia University History Department, the so-called Dunning School, named after my predecessor, William A. Dunning, who taught the Civil War era uh, around the turn of the century, 1900 and more, and John W. Burgess uh, in the Political Science Department. They were the uh, progenitors of what we call the Dunning School. Skip uh, explained a little bit uh, via Bowers about what their views were. Reconstruction was a terrible mistake because of giving some modicum of power to former slaves who were incapable of exercising it intelligently or properly. And the Dunning School dominated historical writing on this period way into the 20th century, into the 1950s. It was still being, those works were still being cited by courts in decisions relating to civil rights and issues like that. It wasn't really until the 60s with the civil rights revolution that a new generation of scholars began dismantling the edifice of the Dunning School. Du Bois had of course started that out, but uh, Du Bois's book was not really used in the academic world. It was, a, it was sold pretty well, Black Reconstruction, but it was, uh, it was not considered serious history by the uh, history uh, profession until the 1960s and after.
3: Go back to Birth of a Nation. We tend to think Birth of a Nation was about the Civil War and slavery. It wasn't. It was about Reconstruction. We, America collectively, with very powerful interests in the former Confederacy, but also in the North, Um, powerful Northern capitalist interests, as Du Bois pointed out, wanted to erase this 12-year experiment in interracial democracy. They couldn't literally do it, but they could certainly do it by taking control of the narrative. Why was that important? We tend to forget that until 1910, 90% of all Black people in America lived in the South. South Carolina, Mississippi, and Louisiana were majority Black states, John, And Georgia, Alabama, and Florida were almost majority Black states. In 1867, because of one of the Reconstruction Acts in March 1867, Black men got the right to vote in 10 of the 11 former Confederate states. So I call the summer of 1867 the first Freedom Summer. And 80% of the eligible men, eligible Black men who could register to vote, registered to vote. That's amazing, 80%. And the overwhelming percent of them by far were illiterate, of course. And with the urging of their wives and women and through churches and other civic groups, they registered great debates in the black community about who to vote for. In 1868, they voted 500,000 black men cast their votes. We, you know, it's reasonable to assume for Ulysses S. Grant. Now Grant won overwhelmingly in the electoral college, but he won the popular vote by just over 300,000 votes. So you could say, Black men who were formerly enslaved had elected a president of the United States. Even people who were liberal in the North, who were against slavery as an institution, thought this is too much. And so, within 12 years, and this is an oversimplified version that I'm giving, but within 12 years, and to quote Du Bois, the Compromise of 1877 created an alliance between white capitalist interests, Northern industrialists, and Southern planters ex-slaves and indeed all workers lost out
2: yeah let me let me add to what skip said that uh in terms of the book let's just take that title of the first of the first chapter as you said the black worker he did not say the slave he said the black worker mm. because in
4: this book he's trying without a hundred percent success but he's trying to
2: integrate a racial analysis and a class analysis together. And as Skip said, labor is crucial to uh, his analysis. And indeed, he says, Du Bois says that the tragedy of reconstruction is that white laborers fail to see their community of interest with the emancipated slaves or the black workers. They, and he used this phrase, which later was picked up by David Roediger and many others, the wages of whiteness. White privilege, if you wanna use a modern term, Uh, blinded white workers to the need to ally themselves with the aspirations of blacks. But just starting the book with slavery was itself a radical statement of historical analysis at that time, because the general view of historians was that slavery was really not that important uh, in the coming of the Civil War. You remember the Beardian approach dominated. This was a battle of white agrarians versus white industrialists. And uh, Beard once said, uh, I could write the whole history of the Civil War and never mention the word slavery. But Du Bois starts with slavery to say, no, this is about slavery and its aftermath. And slavery was the fundamental cause of the Civil War. Uh, That is taken for granted by historians today, but it certainly was not in the mid 1930s when Du Bois was writing.
0: So let's take a step back here, and I'd like to ask, starting with you, Skip, how did you first learn about Du Bois' Black
3: Reconstruction? When did you first read it? Oh, in uh, the 1969-1970 academic year at Yale University when I took my very first course in what we then called Afro-American history. I soaked it up like a sponge. It was taught by Pulitzer Prize winning historian William S. McFeely, a great man whom I admired very, very much. And he had us read um, The Propaganda of History, the essay that on historiography, the, of the racist historical accounts of, of Reconstruction. So we, I learned two things at the same time. One, about Reconstruction, and two, that the political stakes about the interpretation of Reconstruction were extraordinarily high. So, And I also learned, uh, we weren't using the word deconstruction at that time, but I learned that you could read closely and tear an argument apart and understand its ideological underpinnings. So it was a great pedagogical device for um, a sophomore at Yale. And I, um, you know, none of us 19 read five 700 pages of Black Reconstruction. I ain't gonna lie about that. <laughs> <laughs> but in the propaganda of history, uh, Du Bois, even then, I think I understood when If we could read sections of it, they're long, beautiful, poetic riffs on the, the coming of freedom. He called it the coming of the Lord in, in this section. And the, the, the voice of the spirituals, which Du Bois called the sorrow song. So much of this book has let me uh, think about Du Bois in his, as a, an historian. I always think about him as a literary scholar because that's what I am. But even his history is replete with poetry. Even more important than his facts was the fact that he was mounting a poetic defense of African-Americans and their humanities. And he has this great line about his own position in which he says, I write then in a field devastated by passion and belief. Naturally, comma, as a Negro, comma, I cannot do this writing without believing in the essential humanity of Negroes. In their ability to be educated to do the work of the modern world, so you knew that this was a brief for the humanity and the equality. I'm not talking about the equality before the law. I'm talking about the equality of persons of African descent on the great chain of being in the scale of nature. That was obvious to me even as a sophomore, and you realized that the stakes were that high for Du Bois. So, Eric, I
0: know that uh, your family included historians of African uh, Americans long before any of us were going to college and your family was involved in civil rights politics around New York City so i imagine you had heard of W.E.B. Du Bois and black reconstruction before you were a sophomore in college
2: Du Bois was an acquaintance of my family my my parents i i think the first time i ever laid eyes on Du Bois was when I was quite young, and we used to frequent one of these left-wing summer uh, resorts up in the Catskill Mountains. And one day, this short, very well-dressed elderly man walked into the dining room, which was this big thing, and everybody got up and applauded. These were all old leftists of one kind or another. And of course, I didn't know what, what was this about. And my mother just said, "Well, this is doc- this is Dr. Du Bois." So I didn't know, you know, I was maybe five or six years old, I didn't know what Dr. Du Bois meant. But fast forward to 1960, when I'm a freshman in college at Columbia, and my brother and I are picketing Woolworths in New York in sympathy with the sit-in movement at Woolworth stores uh, in the South, the spring of 1960. And uh, my family visited Du Bois and his wife, Shirley Graham, uh, in Brooklyn at their house. And uh, we told him we'd been out picketing Bullworths. And Du Bois said, now here he's about in his early 90s, I believe. He said, I would like to picket also, but Shirley won't let me. (laughs) He thinks he's too old to go out picketing Bullworths. So that was the first time I met Du Bois, but it, in terms of reading the book, that came when I was a student a little later at Columbia, and the, a great teacher, James Shenton, I was in his seminar on uh, the Civil War Reconstruction Era, and he assigned Du Bois, and he said, you've got to read the whole 700 pages. <laughs> um, I'm not sure we've read every single one, but he told us to do that. And uh, the, he's the chairman of the History Department. Uh, according to Shenton, told him he was not supposed to assign Du Bois because it was not real history. <laughs> uh, he uh, didn't care about that, and he assigned it, and we discussed it. So that's when I first came upon Black Reconstruction, and I got to know it very, very well later when I was working on my own uh, history of Reconstruction.
3: And uh, John, if I may, one of the great honors of my life, uh, knowing about Eric's relationship to, uh, the relationship of Eric's family to Du Bois, and then you know, Eric had actually seen him. Du Bois died when I was 12. Okay. So I never, I never saw him. But I revered Du Bois. The proudest thing in my collect, I'm a collector of Afri- Africana. I have the first edition of Souls of Black Folk in a dust jacket, <laughs> which I just got as a gift from some friends for my 70th birthday. But when we had the first screening of our reconstruction series, I gave in front of hundreds of people, I gave Eric a gift. And, you know, Eric's so modest. And I said, Unwrap it. You know, we're sitting on the stage with Kimberly Crenshaw and uh, I guess David Blake. And I said, unwrap it. And he unwrapped it. And what was it, Eric? Tell John what it was.
2: Well, it was a copy of Black Reconstruction, first edition, inscribed by Du Bois to his daughter. Isn't that yeah. correct? Oh, that's correct. Wow. Yeah. That's- Yolanda. So that was a very, uh, I i cherish that uh, gift. I appreciated it then, and I appreciate now having it on my uh, shelf in my living room.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, Skip, you first read this in 1969, which was kind of a peak year of black Militants. You're republishing it now. I
3: first read one chapter. <laughs> okay.
0: okay. Your introduction came in a peak year of Black Militants of 1969. You've edited a new edition of it in the world of Black Lives Matter. What's it like to read it now in the context of Black
3: Lives Matter? You know, I've taught the literature from the slavery and the literature of the 19th century. Since I was 26 years old, I've been teaching in the college classroom since that time. And I'm 71, so you could do the math. But it was only making this documentary that I really understood the rise of white supremacy and its history in um, the United States. And remember of the 200,000 black men who fought in the civil war, probably 145, 150,000 were not free. In 1860. They were people who became free because of the Emancipation Proclamation. They were able to get behind, behind Union lines, then join the United States Army and serve. They became Lincoln's Black warriors. So um, the Emancipation Proclamation not only freed um, the slaves, it empowered Black men to shoot and kill white men, which was a quite a radical thing. <laughs> yes. This moment, it's like, it's almost as if, and Du Bois suggests this. Then, after the Civil War, after the elections of 1868, both white liberals in the North and the, the white, you know, former Confederates woke up and said, what the hell did we do? What did we do? And this is the result. And they were able, after 750,000 human beings died during the Civil War, they were able to put aside their differences, uh, uh, you know, overlook treason overlook secession, put aside all those differences, and decide they had more in common with each other than they did with Black people. That is the history of race in America. That's what you learn from studying Reconstruction. So
0: my last question, given that people today can read Eric Foner's book on Reconstruction, given that we can watch the Henry Louis Gates four-hour series on Reconstruction on PBS anytime you want— Uh, Do you think people can still get something out of reading this 1935 book?
2: Absolutely. Uh, First of all, as Skip said, Du Bois is a poet as well as a historian and scholar, and it's just much of the book is just beautiful to read. I think what's really interesting is that the more you know about this period, the more you come to appreciate Black Reconstruction, how many current ideas he anticipated, starting with slavery as the fundamental cause of the Civil War and starting with Black people as key historical agents of change in that in that era. Frequently, I've had the uh, experience of dipping into uh, Black Reconstruction to say, wait a minute, I, th- I thought of that. I thought I was original <laughs> when I said that. But actually, Du Bois had anticipated me by 50 years or something like that, you know? So, uh, yes, there's plenty of modern scholarship. Some of it has uh, challenged or criticized some of Du Bois's uh, statements. But um, it's definitely well worth reading, especially in the condition that our country is uh, in today.
3: He had to go back and write the record about the moment Black rights had been snatched away. Black people had more rights in 1875 because of the Civil Rights Act for eight years until the Supreme Court declared it unconstitutional, then they would have again till the mid 1960s. <laughs> it was such a crucial moment in the history of race in America. It is what could be. What could have been if the Supreme Court had not uh, denuded the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, the Reconstruction Acts? What could have been if Black suffrage had been protected in the South? What could have been if there had been land Redistribution. What could have been? It would have been a new world of race situated right here in the post Civil War United States of America, but people decided it was not to be.
0: Black Reconstruction 1860 to 1880 by W.E.B. Du Bois has just been published by the Library of America in a new edition, edited by Eric Foner and Henry Louis Gates. Guys, Thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you.
2: Great to talk to you,
1: John.
0: It's the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener talking about politics, Thinking About the Left. Now it's time to talk about an immigrant sweatshop worker who became one of the most charismatic radical leaders of the early 20th century. She's been forgotten, but now a new book tells her story. The book is Rebel Cinderella, and the author is Adam Hochschild. Adam is a best-selling author of 10 books. My favorites are To End All Wars. It's about the anti-war movement of World War I and Bury the Chains. It's about the beginnings of the abolition of slavery. Adam has won many awards. He's a co-founder of Mother Jones Magazine. His articles have appeared in The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, and The Nation. Adam, welcome back.
4: Thank you, John. It's always good to talk with you.
0: Well, I'm a historian of the American left, but I must confess I never heard of Rose Pastor Stokes until your book came along, but apparently I'm not the only one.
4: That's for sure. She's really a a largely unknown figure today. The surprising thing to me as I delved into her life story was that at the time that uh, she was alive and politically active, she was extraordinarily well-known. In fact, the proprietor of a newspaper clipping service in 1921 and the newspaper clipping service was the nearest thing to a database at that time. Did a count and found that she was the woman whose name was most often mentioned in American newspapers. There were five men, you know, people like Woodrow Wilson and Henry Ford, whose names were mentioned more often, but no woman was mentioned more often in the press. And if you Use a database of old newspapers today, like the wonderful one that the Library of Congress has that's online and free for anybody to use. You'll see thousands of articles about her.
0: Well, you open your book, Rebel Cinderella, with a fabulous scene, Rose Pastor Stokes at Carnegie Hall in 1916, but she's not playing the violin.
4: Right. She is addressing a rally promoting birth control. And to speak publicly about things and to distribute medical information about birth control was illegal under the Comstock Act at that time. And she announced on the stage of Carnegie Hall, I'm going to break the law right now. And she began passing out birth control leaflets.
0: You write about her first job in a sweatshop making cigars. How did a cigar maker get a full-time job at a newspaper? You know, a lot of young people today would like to get a job like working at a newspaper right now.
4: That's for sure. There were more newspapers back then. Well, here in brief is her story. She came to the U.S. uh, as an immigrant. She was born in Tsarist, Russia, fled from there with her mother at the age of three, lived in England for uh, seven or eight years, came to the U.S. in 1890 at the age of 11, and had to immediately go to work as a factory worker uh, in a series of factories that made cigars. By the end of a dozen years, she was the sole support of herself, her mother, and six younger siblings who'd been abandoned by a 'er ne'er-do-well stepfather. But starting around 1900 she began sending anecdotes letters articles sentimental poetry to a Yiddish language newspaper in New York the Yiddish's Tagablat or Jewish Daily News happily for me because I don't know Yiddish she wrote for the papers one English language page mm. and in early 1903 The newspaper invited her to come to New York. She had been uh, living and working in Cleveland, Ohio, with her family, come to New York and become a reporter for the newspaper. And that she did.
0: Now, the interesting thing to me at this point was that she was not submitting radical, revolutionary, pro-labor articles. That's not what got her the job. What was she writing when she first started?
4: She was writing uh, humorous anecdotes, sentimental poetry, and an advice column for women called Just Between Ourselves, Girls.
0: And what kind of advice did she offer?
4: Very conventional advice. No sex before marriage, hold out for the right man, worship at the synagogue uh, on Saturdays, but sit in the balcony. Which is in Orthodox synagogues is often where women were, were segregated and made to sit. Very conventional stuff. Didn't seem to have thought much about politics. But after she moved to New York and got married, uh, she got very deeply into the radical movement of that time.
0: And then she got married. The, the man in your story, James Graham Phelps Stokes, I was familiar with his name. For one reason, the Phelps Dodge strike of 1917, it was at a gigantic copper mine in Bisbee, Arizona. It's an incredible story and it tells a lot about the family that he came from.
4: It does indeed. This was the strike where the company, the mining company, mobilized a posse of several thousand people and rounded up some 1200 workers and took them out of out of town across the state line to New Mexico. To get them out of town. Very brutal crackdown. This was one source of the family's uh, fortune. Another source was New York real estate, especially luxury apartment buildings on the Upper East Side. They also owned a cluster of gold and silver mines in Nevada and a railroad that led to them. And James Graham Phelps Stokes, or Graham as he was known to his friends, was. Son of this family, but he'd taken a somewhat different route in life. He went to medical school, got very horrified by encountering extreme poverty in New York City. He was in medical school at Columbia while he was working as a medical student on a horse drawn ambulance serving the city's slums. He was shocked by what he saw. And he became part of the settlement house movement and went to live in a settlement house, as many volunteers did at that time, settlement house on the Lower East Side. And one day, Rose Pastor, as she then was, was sent to interview him. That's how they met, and they fell in love. So,
0: poor left-wing girl marries rich guy from an incredibly wealthy family. How did this marriage work?
4: Well... It was an extraordinary match, not just because it was someone extremely poor marrying someone extremely rich, but because it was a marriage of Jew and Gentile, which was very, very unusual at that time. And the unusualness of it made it literally front page news uh, across the country it was it was reported in europe and australia and other places as well front page of the new york times lead story in the new york evening world this extraordinary match and the public followed them with great fascination they lived in a blaze of publicity for the next twenty years because this seemed to be the cinderella story prince charming from his castle uh, Marries poor virtuous Cinderella whisks her off to the castle from her humble hearth, and so on except their lives didn't follow the Cinderella script Ramstokes, Stokes to some degree had left the castle Rose had no desire to live in one they often stayed with his parents who had uh, extraordinarily fancy homes but it always made her uncomfortable and they married in 1905. In 1906, they both joined the Socialist Party. And for the next dozen years or so, they were friends with all the most interesting people in American life at that time. Emma Goldman, Lincoln Steffens, John Reed, Margaret Sanger, Big Bill Haywood, Eugene Debs. Uh, all these folks were in and out of their homes. And some of, some of them left us their recollections of Rosengram.
0: So, Graham Stokes became a socialist. How closely did he follow her politics? She was always in the lead and he was always one step behind?
4: Not exactly. He was, in a way, in the lead at the beginning because theirs started off as a fairly traditional marriage. Graham was seven years older than Rose, They married on her 26th birthday. She looked up to him, was enormously impressed that here was this guy who knew a lot of the leading writers of the day, had multiple graduate degrees, seemed to know all kinds of things that uh, she didn't know and hadn't experienced in, in life. And I think it took her a decade or so to realize that she was smarter than he was. There soon began to be an imbalance that appeared because she was a tremendously popular public speaker. Uh, one of my few regrets in in researching the book was that it was just a decade or two too early for audio or video so i couldn't actually hear the sound of her voice but there're countless people writing to her saying this is the best speech i ever heard it moved me to tears newspaper reporters saying you know the audience was so riveted that they wouldn't leave the hall even when they turned the lights off things like that and there're signs that Graham was not happy that his wife began receiving <laughs> more attention than, than he did. And then came World War I. Right. And this was the cause of really the first breach between them. Rose ended up feeling uh, that it was a terrible mistake for the United States to enter the war. And she went on the road saying this publicly giving speeches in different parts of the country. Graham Stokes was so enthusiastic for the war that he enlisted, went into uniform, was too old to be sent overseas, although he tried very hard to make that happen. But he served in uniform in the New York National Guard for several years, never got closer to combat than marching down Fifth Avenue in a parade. And then they were further divided by the Russian Revolution, which happened, you know, the, the second phase of the Revo- Russian Revolution, the Bolshevik seizure of power, which happened in the fall of 1917. Rose was all for it. Graham was against it. So this deepened the rift between them.
0: Now, you say Rose campaigned against America's entry into World War One. A lot of their friends in the Socialist Party who did this ended up deported or in jail. For example, Eugene Debs went to prison and Emma Goldman was deported. What happened to Rose?
4: She was arrested, sentenced to 10 years in prison under the Espionage Act for speaking out against American participation in the war. Graham Stokes put up bail money. They appealed the case. And eventually, some three years later, it was overturned on appeal, so she didn't have to go to jail. Eugene Debs, however, was so moved by her being sentenced and being willing to go to prison for her beliefs that he began speaking out against the war much more energetically than he'd done before. And actually, in the speech for which he was arrested, he said, if Rose Pastor Stokes is guilty, then so am I. And he was sent to prison for several years, and he was still in prison in November of 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president on the socialist ticket.
0: Well, all this happened 100 years ago. Do you see any parallels to today?
4: Well— I think a lot of the issues that angered Rose and Graham, that made them go into the socialist movement, are very much still with us. Look at inequality in this country. Today, the top 1% of the population has a greater share of the income and a greater share of the wealth than was the case in 1905 when Rose and Graham got married. You know, we still have extreme poverty in parts of this country. Uh, Every time I drive onto the freeway in Berkeley, I see an encampment of homeless people with their tents under the freeway underpass. So a lot of these problems are still with us. You say
0: she was prosecuted under the Espionage Act. Whatever happened to the Espionage Act?
4: An amended version of it is still with us. And uh, security agency whistleblower Edward Snowden and uh, a number of other whistleblowers have been prosecuted under it.
0: The amazing story of Rose Pastor Stokes. Adam Hochschild tells it in his irresistible new book, Rebel Cinderella. Adam, thanks so much for talking with us today.
4: Thank you, John.
0: We spoke with Adam in March 2020. Rebel Cinderella is out now in paperback. (laughs) That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo.